Hey, everybody, and welcome to Gated, the podcast where we take an insider's look at some of your favorite artists in the outdoor industry. I'm your host, Emily Tidwell, and I'm stoked you're here. Let's get started. We're going to have you start off with who you are and what you do. My name is Mike Rogie, and I'm the editor of Mountain Gazette. And we pair every episode at Gated with a beverage of choice. Now, to be fair, it is 10 o'clock in the morning, almost 11. But what are we pairing our episode with today? We are drinking coffee. Excellent. A favorite. What kind of coffee do you have? I have a straight black coffee topped off with just a small bit of half and half, a.k.a. upstate New York coffee. Okay. Just like just a splash? Just just to add a little color to the coffee. Okay, yep. I was going to say there's like a lot of complexities that can go around adding half and half into a coffee and you never you never really know. I live with someone who has to put an inch and a half of flavored creamer in the bottom of it. Maybe you didn't know that about Max. It's, it's I didn't, but I like him more. Uh, yeah, that. it's <laughs> It bums me out, but that's fine. Every time I'm like, wow, this is, uh, it's the color. I'm technically having chai right now, and it's like the color of a chai, but I digress. Well, thank you for coming on. Welcome to Gated. And really, I want to start it off with, tell me where you grew up. Like, I want to hear more about who you were when you were little Mike Rogie. Okay, so um, I was born in Glens Falls, New York, um, and... I am part of like a multi-generational family that has lived in the Glens Falls, Queensbury, Lake George area of upstate New York. It's the Southern Adirondacks, um, which is a 6 million acre protected wilderness park. So um, I grew up basically at the door of this like super unexplored, incredible area. Um, And... Yeah, I grew up with like pretty humble beginnings. My parents brought me home to a single wide mobile home and I watched my mom and dad work really hard over like the next 20 years to, you know, acquire wealth and a, a home and send my sister and I to school. And it was really cool to watch my dad do that. He um, is in low income housing. He owns a almost 400-unit mobile home park. And unlike what Warren Buffett tells people about trailer parks and everything, like it's actually quite hard to run it because you want to run it with dignity. And I always say my dad's the only low-income... Uh, my dad's the only low-income housing landlord in the country that has his tenants bake pies and cakes for him on his birthday because he's a good man. You know, he knows when to put the foot down and demand rent when it's not being paid, but he also knows when to be lenient and be fair and understand that people fall in hard times. So that definitely affected the way I viewed the world growing up. Um, And yeah, I grew up skiing a lot and playing baseball. I played baseball three seasons and then skied in the winter. Um, I was shaped quite a bit growing up, like almost equidistant between Montreal and Manhattan. Um, Spent way more time in Montreal than I did in the city. Um, but so I was always like interested in like European culture, like multicultural stuff. Um, and then, yeah, uh, um, graduated from a school on the other side of the Adirondack park called SUNY Potsdam. Um, it's a state New York school. Okay. And, uh, yeah, graduated with a degree in English literature and writing and thought I was going to be a teacher. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that about you. I wasn't planning on you saying that you were planning on being a teacher. That's pretty interesting. I see, like, obviously the writing background, especially for what you do now and all the things that you enjoy, but that was an interesting little tidbit. I have been to Glens Falls before. My mom lived in Rochester, New York, for uh, 10 years And when I was a little ski bum, I would live with her for the month of September because the skiing ended at Mount Hood and I wasn't moving to Salt Lake City yet and visited uh, the park there. And it was incredible, absolutely like beyond breathtaking. I had no idea that that was what that part of New York could look like or be. Yeah, it's interesting. So before I moved out west, I lived in Burlington, Vermont, 
And whenever you see photos of mountains in Burlington, Vermont, that's actually not the green mountains those are the Adirondacks across the lake from Champlain. But yeah, they're, they definitely shaped me. I learned a lot. I made a lot of mistakes in those mountains. Um, I learned to, it's funny. I was just chatting with a friend from Montana yesterday who I grew up with and, um, we were super into media, like my whole crew growing up and we would always film each other and make short movies and stuff. And, um, he and I decided we really wanted to film a sunrise time lapse. Like that was going to be really cool for us. And so we woke up at like four in the morning. We like packed our stuff. We hiked up to the mountain, um, you know, extra battery. We had everything we needed to make it happen, except for one thing that we were facing the wrong direction. And that the sun rises, <laughs> the sun doesn't rise in the West where we were looking. And so, when I say I made a lot of mistakes, it wasn't like deathly mistakes. It was just stupid stuff like that. Yeah. Where we spent four and a half hours getting somewhere <laughs> by foot only to find out that we messed up. And yeah. Oh, no. I mean, I don't think that I've been in that exact situation before, but I've definitely made like a stupid mistake in that realm, both as a kid and as an adult, maybe in the last few years, you know? Yeah. You never know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of being creative, right? Is making yeah. mis- making mistakes, learning from your mistakes, constantly trying to like, you know, be satisfied with your work, but also being like, I could do this differently or better. Or, I think like better is such a weird word. Like, I think differently. Different, yeah, in a different way. I totally agree. I was just talking with Dan Holtz for the episode prior to this one, and we talked about that about like failure and success and how critical it is to have both of them and I've always felt like my failures are more important than any given day of success because you can learn something from success but you can learn so much more and like a wider depth from a failure yeah I think to be a creative person you have to sort of lose your fear of being wrong yeah and failing um I find that like I have some friends oftentimes where they, they probably think I like it's all I do is fail Mm-hmm. Um, yep. but yeah, I don't know. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what worked, what didn't work. Um, I know that people have like really sophisticated tastes when it comes to media. Um, at least the people that I'm trying to find for mountain Gazette. Mm-hmm. And so what worked in issue 196 might not work in 197. Like I can't do it over and over again. You know, like I, I think like I have to constantly be reinventing the ways in which we're telling stories. Oh, wow. So that's something that I wouldn't have thought about. It makes sense, but you have to modify the formula every time just because they like, they don't want the same taste in their mouth. You feel like, or, um, I think like there's the good old stuff, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. like, um, the photo galleries, you know, people love those. We're not going to change that up. Size art, um, his comic in every yeah. issue, the jaded local, yep. um, did not take very long. I think it took like an issue or two for people to start reading our jaded local, our version of the jaded local column, the same way people read powders of like, they flip to the back page, Yep. they find it and they read it. Um, you know, my intro to some extent, but I just wrote my first feature for mountain Gazette. It was deeply personal. And I don't know that I could do that again to the same effect. So it's like, if Mm -hmm. I'm going to write something again, I need to kind of really think about the way in which I'm going to present it. Yeah. We're all over the place. We are all over the place, but that's good. This is fun. This is the conversation you and I usually have. It is. Yeah. We, yeah. We seriously bounce from everything because yeah Rogie and I have known each other for a few years I was actually an intern for him at Verb Cabin one of the first winners that I moved out to Tahoe first and last intern at Verb Cabin you've been so successful I was like too afraid to try to repeat it (laughs) shut it down I was like this program's done we have interns (laughs) at at Mountain Gazette but yeah no longer on the production side yeah Which is cool. So, um, cause you mentioned, obviously you own Mountain Gazette, you're producing that, but you also have your own, would you call it a production company? What would you call Verb Cabin? So Verb Cabin is an LLC and if I could make a living for my family, like selling hot dogs, Verb Cabin would be a hot dog stand. (laughs) And essentially it's just a business entity that it owns Mountain Gazette and, um, for a long time, for 
about eight years, it was uh, like gun for hire production work. So we would do filming, photography, copy, editing, and writing, a little bit of design. Um, but it was always, it was founded on the premise of like, what if uh, instead of doing marketing materials, we did journalistic, um, I'd say like marketing materials with like a journalistic background. So we didn't okay. do a lot of like what say like stepped productions does where they're producing like really high end commercials for television. Mm -hmm. We made documentaries for brands and said, be bold and have the audacity to tell the truth mm -hmm. and watch what happens. And I think what the brands we've worked with have found is that it really works. Like you get a better customer when you're honest, you get, uh, a lifetime customer because they know they can trust you because you're just constantly telling true stories again and again. Um, and we tried not to like over sensationalize anything. And so, yeah, verb cabin started almost 10 years ago in Haiti. Um, Blake Kimmel, the co-founder and I, um, went to Haiti and produced a documentary for Kehande Wiley. Who's a, oh, okay. who's a, a portrait artist out of Brooklyn. And that was how it started. Whoa, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. 10 years ago. Yeah. That feels like, wow. I, I feel like we were only just talking, I guess, yeah. I was talking to you and I was like an intern five years into Verb Cabin. So that feels crazy that it's already, it's already doubled its time. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. And neither of us are 40 yet. So we're crushing. Hey, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the full win. Yeah. Well, Verb Cabin, and I've worked for you for Verb Cabin before too, and yes, like storytelling on a journalistic side has always been prevalent through that work. How did you jump from graduating college planning on being a teacher into more of that journalistic, I just want to write? How did that happen? In college, um, I did a little bit of writing in high school. Um but in college, I started. I was really close to Montreal. It was about an hour away, and I became friends with the guys that started NewSchoolers.com. Mm. And I started writing for NewSchoolers. And then NewSchoolers was acquired, and they hired Jeff Schmuck. And what was awesome was these blogs I was doing for free. Um, I started getting paid to write them. And it was like at the beginning of social media, back when like social media was like earnest. Mm -hmm. And you could do what I see like a lot of other media people doing now, where you just like, go on Instagram and DM someone and hope they get back to you. Like I was doing that with Facebook and it worked well. Yep. Um, I think in one year I produced like over 120, 130 articles for new schoolers. Holy shit. So I like cranked. I like basically would go to class in the morning, um, would do my work, come home, eat lunch, would try to do an interview, would like go to dinner, come home from dinner, would crank out whatever I had done in that interview. And then mind you, this is like pre rev.com. So I was like transcribing all oh, of these interviews yeah. myself. And so what I would do is I would call someone on my cell phone, record the interview on my laptop, and then would just in iTunes, like play it back and just write everything. And I would crush as hard as I could. And what sucks about doing that is like, you can't listen to like a podcast or like a music, yep. like an album or something like that. You just, you have to be solely focused on one thing. And I think it was good for me. It was like me putting in my 10,000 hours to yeah. become an expert. Totally. I heard the way people spoke about skiing and mountains and passions and pursuing things and family. And, um, and so I, yeah, I did that. And at the time I was working at a Italian restaurant called Mama Lucia's, um, classic restaurant story. They hired me to be a bartender and I became a bus boy. <laughs> It was like, cool, thanks, guys. And yeah. um, I wanted to be a server. That didn't happen. But I started making enough money, like quite a bit of money, actually, um, in college writing about skiing that I stopped uh, working at Mom Lucia's. And that was the last, like, quote, unquote, real job that I ever had. And I was 20, 20 years old when that happened. So Sick. Yeah. And then so – Thought I was going to graduate and find a teaching job. Thought I was going to go um, get like my master's or like go to law school or something. I was like, okay. I don't know. That's what I should do. Mm -hmm. I felt like I owed it to my parents, like given they were like helping me so much with my education that I like should go make quote unquote make something of myself. 
and I had to find a way to do that without being like, I'm going to go ski bum for a year or whatever. But I got a job with Ski the East and um, the Meathead Films guys. I moved to Burlington. Um, my friend Adam hooked me up with an apartment that was like, he was so generous, gave it to me way cheaper. Like, I think I paid $300 a month in rent. Damn, that's so nice. Yeah, he just like, I think he just was like, I got to help this yeah. kid. And like, I was probably a horrible roommate. Like, I didn't sleep. I was always traveling. Like, I was up a lot writing. I basically replicated what I did for new schoolers for Ski the East to like okay. up their presence and like sell merch. I signed their first team. Um I actually, people don't know this, I helped co-found the Traveling Circus, which was crazy. Oh, that's cool. At that point, Ski the East was actually the sponsor of Traveling Circus before Line Ski. It's just saying, right. just saying. There but you go. Anyways, um, did that, uh, ran a radio show called The Ski Show and interviewed skiers live on air, which was so much fun on like real radio. Sick. Yeah. I didn't know about that either. Yeah, it was in Burlington. And actually it's crazy like, if you go to the J Ski Ski the East store that just opened in Burlington and you are standing on their front porch and you look like across the street to the left, um, you can actually see the radio station where I used to host the ski show. And, cool. And yeah, it was amazing. Like I used Skype. This was like pre-Zoom, pre-Google <laughs> yeah, Hangouts. It, yep, the Skype. Yeah. And use Skype. So that allowed me to interview like Canadians and Europeans and it was really cool. Mike Douglas was on the show, like, and got a job. Iconic. Yeah, I got a job with uh, Powder Magazine. I, had, like, attracted Derek Taylor, the editor of Powder. Mm -hmm. He was wondering why I didn't ask him to come on the show, actually. And <laughs> it was because I honestly thought the editor of Powder had way better shit to do than talk to me. Yeah. So I applied for a job. I was 23 and couldn't even rent a car when I went out for my interview in California. And... Yeah, went up, interviewed. They asked me where my favorite place to ski was. I was so nervous. I told them it was my home mountain. Yeah. I was like, well, it's what I know, and it's what I'll always have. So it feels pretty good to me, and that was a good enough answer. And they called me a week later, and Derek um, told me on the air that I got the job in front of like 14,000 listeners. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's so epic. Technically, he wasn't allowed to offer me a job because it was like through HR. I had to offer me the job as like a corporation, but like he told me during the break and I wanted to go celebrate with my friends. No one was in town. So I ended up going to Nectar's by myself, having a beer and listening to this band and was just like, what the fuck just happened? Oh my God. Oh, that gives me chills. Yeah. Oh, that's like... <laughs> Is there an archive of that show? Do you have an archive of it or is it somewhere? No, I, it was all... Because that seems so fucking cool. It was all live and like that was like the yeah. early days of... That was back when like podcasts started and they were video podcasts. Yeah. No one was doing audio podcasts. They were trying to make like basically like television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Short yeah. form television, like web series. Um, no, there's not. And I like have thought about starting it up again. But like it's just... I think that it's time came and went. And it was like a good yeah. moment in time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but I mean, it was fun. It was really good. I mean, Jeff Thomas and Ross Imbergia um, did a, like a shotgun contest, like on the radio, which is funny because <laughs> like you can't see it. So I like live announced it and I was like, Ross is winning. Ross is winning. And Jeff won. And that was pretty fun. Um, we had kids from UVM when Tom Wallace was in town. Like he came in. Wallace came in a lot. It was awesome because he was still living in. Yeah, because he went time. to the U, didn't he? Well, no, he wasn't in Utah at that point. No, but I mean, he yeah. went to the U in no, Burlington. He, oh, no, he okay. didn't go to UVM, but he was in, like, Burlington was kind of the uh, epicenter of, like, East Coast skiing during Definitely. that time. Mm -hmm. You know, and, like, so, yeah, Ian Compton would come in a lot. Um, Dan Marion was on the show, like, all the time. He's half-pipe skier from Maine. Um, and, like, yeah, it was, it was good. Like, it was a fun show, and, but I ended up at, Powder. Um, I did one final ski show episode at Powder where I interviewed Tanner Hall and we finished it. And then I worked at Powder for three years, left, moved to Truckee for a winter and decided in the summertime that I would, I had some like cool South American travel that I still got to do when I left Powder. So I went down to, um, our, I went down to Chile and judged a contest with Sherry McConkie and Ingrid Backstrom, which was so dope. Sick. 
so fun. And it was a film contest called Eye of the Condor. And then came back, found a place on the West Shore and decided I was going to try to live here for and see how see what would happen. Yeah. And yeah, that was um, like 13, 14 years ago. Damn. I feel like there's so many, I, there's a lot of parallels between like your life and my life though. They're like completely different. But in those moments where it's like, okay, I'm just going to try something or I'm going to make this like huge leap without really having not that you didn't have like a plan, but you're willing to make like a really big risk and be like, ah, shit, we're going to find out. Like, I can't believe I'm working for powder now. Like that yeah. feels like a huge leap. Yeah. The thing that I learned, um, probably like, f- probably like 15 years ago, um, from Porter Fox, who was the features editor at powder was like, what's your burn rate? Like how much does it cost for you to live? Mm-hmm. You should try to make like, I don't know, 10 to 20% more than that at, at minimum. You know? Yeah. And if you can try something and make that work, then you're doing it. You know, like, I don't know if you want to, like, make, like, hand-molded coffee mugs for a living, like, and your life costs $1,000 a month and you're doing, like, 1200 to 1400 Like, technically, you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're breaking even, <clears throat> if anything. I mean, like. You're making it work. Yeah. You know? And I think that's the, the thing that is I always was just like, can I make this work? You know, and it's continued, you know, getting married and having kids and like having a mortgage and having employees, like having subscribers, like there's a lot of responsibility, but at the same time, I've just always been on this, like, okay, what's our burn rate for the month? Yeah. Can we afford this? Can we not? And that's kind of how we make a lot of our decisions. And, you know, being a freelancer, you learn how to be really crafty yeah no shit right and yeah. you're just like okay I would love to do this but we definitely can't afford it so what's a way where I can kind of get a similar result and that, I was always like results based on that like deliverable based like cool can I still deliver great photos for a client or great copy for a client under like a different deadline and then and then you start to get like fancy with it where you're like can I copy edit the entire Scott catalog from the Scott chair at Alpine Meadows and I did. And you're like, yeah. And you're like, this was sick. And I was like, hey, can I ski for three hours in the morning and write an article on the chairlift? Mm, I could write like a, a draft. I'd still have yeah. to go home. But you're like, okay, that works. Um, can I communicate on Slack with a team? Not really because like the communications cadence of only talking to people on a chairlift is pretty bad. So like you kind of get fancy and you try to figure out like what works and then mm-hmm. – you know, lifestyle businesses have gotten a bad rap throughout the years, but I don't know, like I've built mountain gazette and verb cabin to work for me. If I wanted to work for something else, I'd go work for someone else. Yes. I have had a lot of conversations about that in the last few years, but especially recently about like, it is how you can make it work, especially as a freelancer or anything I sometimes get really caught up in the like, I need to go, 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 and I can make so much more money if I just keep on this. And for me, what I found out is that that's so, it's attainable, but so non-sustainable. And I've just recently reverted back to, okay, what can I do to make myself happy and break even or, you know, hopefully make more than breaking even, but while coming home at the end of the day and just not being totally disappointed with how my life is going and if I have a social life or not or a personal life or not because of work. Life's short. We should feel good about the life we're living. Yeah. Because we live in an area of the country that's expensive. It's hard to live here. It's hard to find housing. We're fortunate that we have it. Mm-hmm. We're fortunate that we have good partners. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know. If I just wanted to work 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week and like earn income and then like, I don't know, check out and I, like I'd go work for a, a, something else. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I want to be fulfilled by my work. That's yep. really important to me. And I think that um, just like a cup, you can like almost fulfill yourself too much and have like too many good things happening where Mm -hmm. now it's like, like the last three months, like my, I, my youngest son is five months old in the last three months. Like I, I admit I took on way too much work and 
I didn't miss anything, but like that actually, because I balanced it too well, I was like spending way too much time at work. Mm-hmm. I haven't really done anything for myself in a long time. And so I'm starting to get back to using the word no. Yeah. Respectfully, not like a dick, but like, yeah, we, you know, we've been offered quite a few custom book projects and Mountain Gazette projects and we're going to do a few, but we're not going to do like five years ago. I would have done all 12 of them. Yep. Now I think we're gonna do like two, maybe three. Yeah. No is such a critical word to use in your regular vocabulary because I too for a really long time said yes to every single thing that came up and especially when you're beginning as a freelancer if anything really in anything I think there's such a like weird fear of scarcity that if you don't say yes to this then nothing else will show up yeah but I don't think that that's true I've realized the more I say no the more opportunities that actually spring up and then I see that they align with me better and giving myself a break and time and my brain a moment to clear itself and find its creativity again has ultimately been so much more successful than just taking on every single damn project. Yeah. I mean, you know, I kind of think of life like a river, like you can't make it stop, Mm -hmm. but you can certainly kind of control the way you're, you're going to, you know, float down it. Mm -hmm. Um, You can paddle super hard and be like, lightning speed and take years off your life. You hear that happening all the time of people that are like, Oh my God, like my twenties. Like I think about my three years at powder and like in some ways it felt really, um, slow, like Mm. monotonous. I think like about like just these 16 hour days in San Clemente in the summertime, it's hot. I'm like writing about three layer semi permeable membrane jackets and shit like that. And then in other ways I think like, you know, I'm 37. That was only three years of my life. And I don't even think that work is in like my top 10 of like the best things I've made mm-hmm. in my career, you know? So it's like, as time goes on, I've sort of learned like that just doing a few things really well is better than doing everything like, like good enough, you know? Yeah. So yeah. And good enough is totally acceptable in the creative world right now on time and good enough People are very satisfied with that. You'll get paid for that. You can live a very nice life doing that stuff. Yeah, that's true. That's not what I want to do. No, I don't either. I think that's like me personally, I deal with, I'm sure you feel this too, is the perfectionism and the like almost need, like the incessant need to do something better and always be top tier. I've had to personally take a step. I'm learning to not always be a perfectionist and that if it's not 100%, it's okay, but I don't yeah, I don't want to be that it's good enough. I yeah. don't I hate that phrase. Kids have taught me, my children have taught me that like there's no such thing as um like they will not allow anything to be perfect mm. in like a really great way too. Mm-hmm. Like I think the best thing that's happened the last few months is like I've invested a lot more time into my relationships with my friends and with my family and and that feels better like that feels like the most worthwhile investment you can make mm-hmm. um creatively like kim stravers our copy editor and john coleman who's our art director at mountain is that like the three of us actually after 198 were like hey can we like rethink this process of how we make this not like what's in the magazine but like how we make the magazine. Mm -hmm. Is there a way where we can make it so like it's less stressful, you know? And so we've added like a month of production time to everything. I mean, we're only twice a year. So like, just like, I think that's important. And like, we're making this investment now to like learn not even from mistakes, just like, okay, this like process is a little chunky. It could be like smoothed out, cleaned up and like, like almost like just like tear the stress out of it, you know? And we've done that. And I think that's like been really cool. Like the magazine world has, has been the same for over a century, you know, long, maybe even longer than that. And like, we're trying to redefine how you do that stuff. Right. And so it's like, all right, well 
how do we make this again? How do we make this work for us so that like the results are better, mm-hmm. but also like the process is better, which therefore makes the product better and all that. So, yeah, I've had a phrase that I've been reminding myself of recently is that suffering is not success. Like don't look for the suffer in like the, that. like the level of success that you have, because yeah, producing a magazine is something I have zero experience in. And I can only imagine that it is incredibly stressful. How, what's like a general rundown of what it looks like to produce a, it like biannual or not by, bi- yeah, biannually. Yeah. Biannually. So, um, the coolest thing about producing a biannual magazine is you can, like, we have, um, we have a writer going out on an assignment this winter for a story for next fall. You know what I mean? Like you have like a lot of time and space. Um, we have a story in the spring that a writer's been working on for like over a year. So I just have a Google sheet and it's just kind of like, okay, here's the person, here's the idea, here's how long. And sometimes I tell people too, like, Hey, if you don't have it ready for spring, we can sit on it for a year and we'll gladly like, pay you for the work you've done and continue to pay you to keep working on this. Mm -hmm. So essentially it starts with like, I build out like an outline. Um, I use Apple notes like crazy. It sounds insane, but like (laughs) I used to think I needed to use like a notepad, like field notes and like wear thick frame glasses and be a a writer quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And then I heard that Drake writes all of his lyrics on his phone. And I was like, Oh, well if he does that, I was like, then I don't know. Maybe I'll just do like, so I make the magazine like on Apple notes. Like I just like, what do I pull it up? It's synced across my iPad and my laptop, my MacBook. Um, and so I have it built out. So like right now we're working on mountain gazette, uh, one ninety nine, and, uh, we have a special winter wintergrass issue. It's coming out in February. Cool. And so I have two, um, two notes with those. And I kind of have like, here's the idea dump. And then once it becomes reality and it's assigned, it gets like a, you know, circle next to it. Like, okay, this is happening. I try to get 12 to 16 stories in every issue of Mountain Gazette. Okay. I was going to ask. Yeah. And so then I'm like, all right, cool. Once I have 12 and I feel good about it. And these are like months before we ever go to press or anything like that. I'm like, okay, I feel pretty good about the vibe of this or I'll look and I'll be like, we have too much like foreign travel in this piece or like we don't have anything like down like home, like grounding. I always think like we need the highbrow and the lowbrow mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, we're a little too serious. Okay. This is, we're being a little too funny. And I try to like really balance it out. I've always thought of media like, um, like food and like mm-hmm. the best meals are like, they're balanced. They're like traditional with a little bit of surprise. That's what I've always liked. And that's try to, what I try to do with the Gazette. And so, um, without a doubt, Cy, our artist, Cy Whitling, always like sends his artwork in first. He's like the best. Oh, and he's the best. And then last is always either my column or the jaded. Like, okay. And so, but we know that and we go through it. And so, um, yeah, everything's assigned out. We have our deadlines of when people get it in. Um, if you're a writer and you write for me, like just know that your deadline is usually about a month before we actually need it mm-hmm. because you're always late. <laughs> and I'm always late too with that stuff. Yeah. I understand. Like writers, for whatever reason, other than any other creatives, feel like, oh, well, I'm going to make it a little better. So he won't mind if it's a week late. <laughs> I do mind if it's a week late. So yeah. I'll set your deadline a month early. Yeah. But um, yeah, photos come in and then. Um, I do a top edit with the writer, meaning I like go through and I'm like, does this story make sense? That's the first thing I ask. I read it. I kind of write some questions while I'm reading it. And I'm like, does the story make sense? Like, what's this writer trying to say? I go back to the writer. I try to have a light hand editing, but mm-hmm. I do ask a lot of questions of our writers, um, that need work. Like, is this what you intended? Is this where you're going with this? And I think that helps them just be like, Oh, I actually didn't intend that. Or yes, I did. I should reinforce that thought. And then they get it back to me a couple of days later. Um, I give it another top edit. At that point, it feels pretty good. And um, I'll do like a very light um, grammar and 
mm-hmm. punctuation edit, but it's admittedly not my strong suit. So it goes over to Kim Stravers, who's our brilliant copy editor, and she crushes it. We have a style guide, so she like puts it in our style. That doesn't mean like changing words, but just like the way we do like an M dash or like yeah. a paragraph break or a drop cap or any of that stuff. She like puts it into that. Then I get it back. Sometimes Kim has questions. I'll like, it's crazy. I'll like text the writer. I won't actually send them the piece back because I'm nervous that they'll fuck it up. <laughs> yeah. It's been copy edited. Like we, we've agreed that this is the story, but there are some like specific like, hey, you said this arena was named that, but the current name is actually this. Like, which would you prefer? Yeah. Be? Well, what makes most little things like that? Mm-hmm. We go through that and then it gets the, <clears throat> excuse me, it gets the .ks on the file name which means Kim has signed off on it. I've signed off on it. It goes to John, our art director. He lays it out and we put photos together. And then John and I, he's in upstate New York. Um, We do a Zoom call and he shares a screen and we just go through. And then we like lay out the magazine, comes together. Connor Sedmak, our, um, our associate publisher, starts sending ad creative in from our advertisers. Um, honest to God, we never have any trouble with our ad partners. They like always send in ads on time. They're always beautiful. Like they get it. So that's been really nice. <laughs> that's that, a bonus. It, it hasn't been that way at every magazine I worked for. Sometimes we'd be like, Oh my God, we're waiting on this brand to send in their ad and we have to send this out by five o'clock and it's four fifty eight, And you're like, Oh my God, how did they do this to us? But yeah. our ad partners don't do that. So we start placing ads and then I get the first version of mountain Gazette delivered to uh, me, low res on my iPad and then I get to play teacher. I pull out an Apple pencil with red ink and I just get to be an asshole. No, 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 change this, this, this. And it's amazing. I would love that one day. It's really fun. (laughs) Yeah. It's really fun to go through and do it. And then we like replace images. John and I have like really thoughtful, weird conversations sometimes over like whiskey or beer where we're like, Hmm, like this person's facing left in this photo, but it's on the right side of the page. Do we want them looking in the gutter? Do we want them looking off the page? And it's like, honestly, like who cares? We care. Yep. And that's it. Yeah. Like with your recent feature, um, which was just brilliantly done by you and Megan Michelson about high alpine skinny dipping. Mm-hmm. You know, when we were choosing photos, it was, it was hard for us because we're like, okay, we're two white dudes picking out photos of naked women. Like, yeah, (laughs) this can go really wrong. Yeah. And so we talked about, you know, how is mountain Gazette shown nudity in the sixties and the seventies? And was that appropriate? Granted, like at the time, sure. I'm sure it was fine and appropriate Mm -hmm. and no one cared, but like we live in a different time. Mm -hmm. So like for that one, we sat down we talked a lot. I almost never let, writers or photographers like choose their photos but i actually sent megan some things and i was like hey i just this is our first thought um are there any photos i sent her your submission i was like are there any photos in here that you think the subjects of the skinny dipping profile would be uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with and they were like there were two and it was more like just because like they didn't want we're an 11 by 17 magazine like those are big pages like your belly button's like the size of a quarter. Yeah. It's like, so you want to be careful. Like, and we went through and everyone was like very, um, happy with like the way we selected things. And then, um, for this issue, um, Peter, I believe he pronounced his last name and who's the keyboardist for goose was our guest photo editor. Cool. So we select John and I selected most of the photos we went through and Peter got to like, kind of like, give his take, which was really awesome because he got to look at it from like a consumer, which John and I don't get to do. And he's like our Saudi Arabia piece. He wanted this photo blown up, which was a horizontal. And we ended up cropping it vertically with the photographer. And it's of someone reading a book in the middle of the desert, you know, with a headlamp. Oh, cool. And I was like, well, you lose the like desert part. And Peter was like, yeah, but like the whole piece is about being in the desert. Like, you know where he is. And I just hadn't thought about that, you know? And so I think that's been the best part about kind of what I call like the finishing part of the mountain Gazette is trying to bring people in. We have a cover committee crew where like we send emails out to people and we're like, here's six cover options. What do you think? Mm -hmm. You know? And this round we sent six cover options out and they were all rejected. 
And that's how we landed on the Seth Morrison article. We called Dave Reddick and we called Scott Markowitz and we called yeah. Flip McKerrick. And I was like, great. So I have Scott Markowitz who has more covers than any photographer, maybe in outdoor history. Reddick, the director of photography for powder and Flip McKerrick, the photo editor of freeze. Yeah. Cool guys pick a cover for us, you know, yeah. and they picked that Seth cover and then we send it off to the printer. We get full page proofs back. So we get one for content. We get one for color and kind of like, does this all look right? And honestly, like I, as simply as possible, just like put it next to my external screen. And I'm like, does the, f the image of the photographer sent me on the screen match what's on the page? And if it mm -hmm. doesn't, I actually just go to our printer because they have in-house people. And I'm like, this doesn't match. That's like, I'm not like adjust the saturation and uh, dehaze this photo. I like, I don't know that. Yeah. Like just doesn't plain. feel like it's my place to change people's um, words, like to change sentences for people. And yeah. I don't feel like it's my place for a photographer. I can ask a photographer, can you change this to black and white? Can you really, mm -hmm. but I really want artists work to be presented well in the Gazette. So it comes back. I have about 48 hours with the magazine and then, um, I make any changes that we need to make like in proofs and then it goes back, they're approved and then it's off to the presses. It gets printed. And then about six weeks later, it's delivered to it's delivered to our people. That whole process from start to finish. And again, you do it twice a year. I mean, that's, that's literally almost the time between each issue, right? It's like nonstop. Um, I'm very happy that it's become a big part of my life. Like I have all these great images of Elliot, my oldest son, like looking at proofs with me mm -hmm. and telling me what he thinks, you know, like my column is called here you go. Cause it was kind of like the first sentence Elliot used to say, like he, it was like a, a catch all for like, thank you. <laughs> and like, I'm giving you something <laughs> and like this happened. Like he would like knock something over and be like, Oh, here you go. <laughs> And so I named it that and like, you know, um, it, it's a big part of my life, but it's not my entire life. Yeah. It's a big part of my identity, but it's not my entire identity, but, um, it is the thing that I love to do like the most professionally. Yeah. Like I've been doing other work on the side the last like three months and I'm like, why do I do this? I like don't like this stuff anymore. Like, but no, I mean, I, I, I love doing it and I think Mountain Gazette will have a new editor as soon as I feel like I don't like doing it anymore. Yeah, exactly. Cause then even though it might be sometimes like a subtle shift, it can be felt. Yeah. I, I don't know. I want, um, everyone who works on Mountain Gazette, like everyone that like, is on our staff and for freelancers they're like they love working on mountain gazette mm -hmm. um and i think like i think i just want to keep it that way that's a really fun work environment people feel good about what they're doing every day i mean i feel good about what we're doing every day yeah so um yeah it takes up a lot of time but i don't know i pop my airpods in i ski by myself in the winter time and just kind of let my mind go where it will and and a lot of that gets reflected in the pages. Yeah. So if you are coming from a freelancer's side of this, and obviously we've talked about this before because I sometimes bounce ideas off of you for the Mountain Gazette or et cetera, is there a time frame that you like people to be submitting to you? Is there no time frame? It's all the time. All the time. I don't want to do a thing where we start doing like, we do calls for submissions, but mm -hmm. the last time I did it, I found that like 90% of them were, it's not that they weren't very good. They weren't very good fit for us. Mm -hmm. And I thought a lot about it and it's like, well, people were just like, oh, I want to get in there. And so they just kind of like threw shit at the wall to see if it would stick. Like the stories that do well for us are like, they have to be like some of the best work you've ever done in your life. Mm -hmm. um, it's different for you. You're a senior photographer for us. So like you can text me. Yeah. You can just email me and, yeah. and like, I'm like, okay, cool. So, um, we got over 2000 submissions this year 
and we print less than 30 stories. Holy shit, 2,000? Yeah, so we've developed, like, a, people are like, well, why do your submission guidelines come? Like, why do I have to sign up for an email list? And it's like, well, you have to sign up for an email list because, honestly, like, we had to create a, fl- like a flow of how we could actually review those. So we mm-hmm. have um, we have someone that, as submissions come in, like, she separates those from like general questions about the magazine or subscription issues or customer service stuff. So that comes over. Um, I arrange them into folders. And then what I do is in the winter time, I actually like stop. This is actually, I've never admitted this before. I actually stop reading the news as much. Okay. And I start reading submissions on the chairlift. Oh, okay. And so like, I'm not as like, you know, we have a storm coming tomorrow. So like, I feel like, what's happening in the world right now I'm keenly aware of and I become less aware of in the winter time. I actually replace my news with like what's going on in the minds of outdoor people. Mm-hmm. I start reading stuff and what's crazy is like people like will submit a story to me like, I don't know, like nine months ago mm-hmm. and I'm like, mm, it's not a good fit, but it's a pretty good pitch and I'll keep it in that folder Yeah, and I'll go back and I'll, and I'll mark it as unread. So I have to read it again and I go through and, I don't know. There's some people that have like risen to the top, like Jake Meary, who photographed the Saudi Arabia piece. Like he also shot our 195 cover and he also appeared randomly. He wasn't even like a contributor on it randomly in this like Mexico whitewater group trip from 197. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, this is just like, like John and I are like, I guess Jake's just like a guy (laughs) that is going to be a part of what we're doing here. Cause he's just like, organically popping up in people's story pitches. Like he's a wildland firefighter, like, and he's got a Sony a seven and he just like shoots what he sees. And he's like really well traveled. Yeah. Dirt bagging it. We're just like, wow, this is someone that we didn't seek out. He sent us, uh, he has actually, Jake's never sent us a submission ever. I love it. You know what I mean? And like, it just like, it happens that way. Like, Mm um, you know, Lyra, uh, Lyra Tyson's writing a story for us for 199. She sent an email and it wasn't even like a story pitch. It was like her uncle had passed away and she was staying at her uncle's cabin outside of Yosemite and he had mountain gazettes in there, like 194 up to like 196 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then he also had some of our archive and she's like, Hey, like I've just been like here and like reading this stuff. And like, I think, I think there's something I can do for you. And we hopped on the phone, like, I don't know why, but we hopped on the phone. And then, you know, the next thing you know, she's writing this big piece about like psilocybin use and ultra marathon athletes. And it's just, I wish there was like a really like, it's super simple. Like just do it this way. Like, honestly, if you want to write for the Gazette, we'll find you. Yeah. It's organic. And I don't know. I feel like a lot of everything that comes from the start of like being a creative to then getting your creative work out into the world, the the best opportunities happen in that manner. And when I say we have the best like contributors in the world, I don't mean like just like the talent, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, you shoot for Red Bull, like mm-hmm. Jimmy Chin, like Jason Roman is a like ambassador. Phil Penman's a like ambassador, like Megan Michelson's an award-winning journalist, you know, like, Sadie Stein just became the editor of the New York Times book review. Like we have amazing contributors, um, but their accomplishments aren't what make them amazing. It's like the way they work with us makes uh, them Mm -hmm. amazing. And we have a lot of first time writers, like every single issue so far, five in a row, we've had a first time photographer, uh, first time ever being published and first time ever being published like writer. That's so exciting. And when they, and they're like my favorite, you know, I love all of my children equally, if you will, of all my <laughs> right, contributors equally. But I think the reaction is so cool because they are like seeing their work on a page. Like Adam Berta from who shot our goose feature. Mm-hmm. I believe it's his first time being published on paper. And he was just like, it's, a, it's like, it's affirmation. Yeah. It's like no other feeling. You're not just an Instagram photographer. Mm-hmm. You're not just like an ad photographer. Like you, like, this holds up yep. two, two feet by a foot and a half. We try to give every photographer who shoots for us a spread just so they feel like what it's like to be like, Hey, in this magazine, here are two pages where it is just your work undeniably. And like a small caption with your name on it. Uh-huh. So 
I would say that I, so the first time that I ever got published, it was just a magazine ad in Free Skier. And I went into a Barnes and Noble because even though I subscribed to Free Skier, I wanted to like physically purchase it and walk away with it. And I went into that Barnes and Noble. It was the Barnes and Noble in um, Portland. I can't remember what suburb it is. It was the only one I knew. And I opened it up. And as soon as I got to that page, I like collapsed onto the floor, like as stupid as that is, and cr- and cried. Oh, I know. Like cr- I know. Cried. I know. <laughs> Megan has a photo. My wife Megan has a photo on her phone. So when she lived in the Lower East Side, there's this bookstore that she used to go. It's funny. She admits she used to go there to try to find dates. <laughs> she liked the idea of going to find someone in a bookstore like and, <laughs> and she brought she brought me there for the first time when we were visiting uh, Manhattan and we went in and we went to the art section and we found my book that I wrote on the Candy Wiley like Haiti trip and that was like mind-blowing for both of us I was like I've never I mean that was a fine art book like it was never going to be like mass distributed or anything like that it was going to I didn't even know it was going to be in bookstores sold and to like see it. And you're like, man, like, like they sell Hemingway here. They say they sell JD Salinger here. You mm-hmm. know, they sell Norm McLean here. They sell Emily Dickens. I mean, so many amazing people here. And then I'm here too. And I'm not them, Yeah. but I'm here too. And it's probably the same feeling. Like you're in Barnes and Noble. You're like, dude, some, you can buy something in here with my name in it. It's it's like, yep. it's validating. Yeah. I still, every single time that I have um, an image in print, if I know that I can buy it from a bookstore, I always get in and buy a physical copy so that I feel it. Because I, I still do it like I'm a little kid in elementary school. I, I hug it in with both my arms and I like cuddle it when nice. I go up yeah. to like the register. Yeah. And like sometimes I'll get really excited and the lady will be like, oh, there's this sweet older woman that works in the Barnes and Noble in Reno. We have a great conversation every time. And she remembers me because I always come in and I buy a stack of like action sports ones. And one time I came in and I was picking up an issue that I had a, an image and I can't remember what it was. And she looked at me, she said, oh, those magazines are just so cool. Wouldn't it just be so cool to know some of those people? And I looked at her and I was like, it would be the coolest thing in the world. Yeah, yeah. And she was like, oh, I just get so excited. And we had a really great conversation and I left and I got in my car and I like, I cried again. Cause I was like, Oh my God, like this woman was so sweet. And I didn't tell her cause yeah, I was like, at that point it doesn't matter. Like, it was just really special. You also don't know what impact your work has on people, yeah. which is really cool. And uh-huh. like when you get those glimpses of that stuff, like my favorite mountain Gazette story actually didn't even happen to me. It happened to Megan at Winter Wondergrass last year where she was wearing a Mountain Gazette hat. And some bearded bro went up to her and was like, hey, Mountain Gazette, right on. She's like, yeah, my husband runs it. He's like, oh, Mike, great. Tell him just to keep fucking making it. And I'm just like, <laughs> Whoever you are, if you're listening to this, whatever, like, I just, thanks for that. That's been, like, so validating. Like, I it's think huge. about that all the time. Like, yeah. I don't know. When when I got my name in powder, it's funny. Like, I actually, I felt like, I felt like that little kid, getting back to, like, how we started this podcast. Like, I felt like that little kid who was, like, seven years old, and my dad would drive me in his truck down to, like, Albany to see Warren Miller movies. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking that like the worlds that were in there were places that I couldn't go to. Like it was like for astronauts and I wasn't an astronaut. I was just a kid. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I'd like read it and I'm working on a book project right now. I don't have like a release date, but I'm trying to like anthologize like some of my favorite stories that I've written over the last 20 years. I love that. And I like was reading through it and I was like, fuck yeah, I'm an astronaut. Like I fucking like, I came home to a single wide mobile home. My parents like, you know, did the best they could and they worked so goddamn hard to provide me with everything my sister and I needed. And it's like, now I'm actually pursuing this thing that I super love Mm -hmm. and providing my kids with the exact same thing. Like that feels really good. And it's like, what do I want for my kids? Like I want them to feel like they can pursue whatever they want Mm -hmm. and make a living at it and be fulfilled. Like that's all I really want for them. 
I mean, at the end of the day, that's the only validation that it really matters is that one that you physically can feel in yourself and like know that you're putting it out into the world for for other people, for your family. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten a lot of feedback. So uh, Doug Schnitzbahn, who wrote for 194, he's the editor of Elevation Outdoors in Colorado. He actually told me like, it was funny. We were like, oh, we're not publishing any of these stories online. And they're only in like a few thousand copies. Like we're not printing 10, 20, 30,000 copies like other magazines. We're not for sale on newsstand. So you start to wonder like, are we going to make any kind of dent? Mm-hmm. Is this going to do anything? And Doug's like, I heard more feedback about my Mountain Gazette story than any story I've ever published online. And I thought that was crazy. I was like, whatever. But then like another writer told me the same thing. And then I just wrote my first feature. And like, I'd say like a couple times a week I get a DM, a text, an email, um, someone like in a coffee shop that is like, Hey, I read your goose feature that like really affected me. Like that made me feel something. And they give me like a personal story. It's like, shit's the best. It's so good. That's yeah, I agree. That's what's really important. That's what matters at the end of the day. Well, we've been having a really good talk and I feel like we could kind of talk forever because that's sort of what we do. So I'm going to come back to the question that I've been asking everybody. Although I did ask you a second one before we started talking. Is there one that you want to talk about more than the other? What's that? You tell me. Okay. So I have been asking everybody what their greatest misconception about their work is and that you wish you could tell somebody or we'll switch it at this time and you can also have the opportunity to answer what does success mean to you? Um... So success to me, that's neat. I can do that one quickly. Success to me is making two great magazines a year, skiing a hundred days, being a great father and a great husband. Cool. Done. Yeah. Like if I, if I do that, I'm good. Yeah. You know, like, and I think what's interesting is like, I'm not in control of a lot of that. I can like give my best effort, but ultimately it's up to my family and my readers to kind of determine if those are my qualities. Mm Mm-hmm. And Mother Nature, I guess, with 100 days. But you can almost always ski 100 days in Tahoe. Mm-hmm. But I would say the the biggest misconception of my work is um, I was on another podcast. And I think that people have confused my reporting style with um, maybe sticking my nose in other people's business which is strange okay and i think that um we work in an industry that is constantly like positive affirmation you're killing it you're killing it you're killing it you're killing it that whenever you're like hey this company issued a recall because their beacons are killing people whoa what the fuck dude why are you like ruining the vibe it's like i never signed up to be chicken soup for the skier's soul. Yeah. I think a lot of my writing can be that way and can make people feel good things. But I think my job is to inform people and do it in a way that makes them feel things. And that doesn't always need to be positive. There's not a lot of bad things about recreating in the outdoor world, but there are existential crises that are happening, whether it be mental health or climate change or like just disingenuous business practices that mm-hmm. like prey upon um, what we've talked about in this, like the stoke of like feeling good. Like there are a lot of people that are like the stoke of feeling good is worth pennies on the dollar. Yeah. Hey, you feel good about yourself and we're publishing you. So we're going to pay you five bucks yep. for what should be $500. Mm-hmm. And they know they can get away with it because if you say no, there's 50 kids behind you with a camera that it want their first shot too. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think um, a misconception about me is that I'm trying to stir the pot. I'm not trying to stir the pot. The pot's already been stirred. I'm just showing, you know, I'm holding up a mirror and saying like, some instances I'm saying this is what's happening and I don't comment at all. Other instances I'm saying this is fucked up and it's not okay. Yeah. Um, my parents have always taught me to stand up for what I believe in. Mm-hmm. And the thing I believe in above anything else in this world is like the art of ski bumming and freelancing and living life on your own terms. And I think the people 
that prey upon those qualities like deserve to be called out. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that like consumers are smart. Readers are smart and they can see through bullshit a mile away. And, um, I think the people who have gotten upset with me about that style of reporting are probably just upset because the things that people are seeing in the mirror about them are just not, it's not that attractive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I won't name a publication, but there's a publication that I left because they were not treating freelancers well. Mm -hmm. And I think that I probably, that probably leaving them probably damaged my career more than anything. But, I didn't feel like I could be assigning articles to people like you or my friends or people that I didn't even know. Actually, it, was, it wasn't it was even so much my friends because I could like talk to them about it and really let them know, but it was like the kids or the young person or like the career pivot person in their 50s who's like, I do this, but I really would love just to get one article published. I was like, man, this is going to be their only experience with publishing and they're going to get hosed on the deal. Yeah. And... I couldn't sit around and stand for that. And so I left very publicly and said why I left and nothing that I said was untrue. And I think that's the part that's funny is like, I'm not a fucking liar. Like I report what I see and what facts I find. And I think people get upset with that because I think there's this like bro code of like, I should be protecting the industry, but the industry is like a $687 billion industry. It's, it's fine if it, there's a few chips in it. Yeah, I agree. You know, yeah. it's clay. We got to mold it into something better than it is right now. I agree. Yeah. I could add in a lot on that, but I'm just going to leave that as a, a pseudo mic drop for you because I'm all bored. <laughs> I'm on board okay. with everything that you just said. Um, well, thank you again for sitting down and talking with me. I'm so stoked that you were on Gated and... Um, I look forward to talking to you again, either, I mean, we'll be talking in real life, but maybe back on the show someday. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that's a wrap on this week's episode. I want to thank Mike Rogi again for coming on. It's always such a great time talking with him and I look forward to more talks in the future. I hope you enjoyed this episode as well. And if you did, please check out our Patreon site where we're going to be pairing this episode like every other with a meal which you get to have as a subscriber for Patreon. Also make sure that you subscribe, you like and share, check out our Instagram and have a great week. We'll see you next time.